Paul just warned the Corinthians that if they didn't change course, that he would be forced to come to them with a whip or a rod at the end of chapter 4. Here in chapters 5 and 6, there are three more issues that the church is negligently ignoring that they are allowing to continue in their midst. The first one that we're going to look at tonight is incest. The second one that we'll look at next week is lawsuits. And then the third one we'll look at in two weeks, immorality, more immorality. In chapter 4, Paul calls out believers for condemning Paul. He says, it ultimately doesn't matter what you think of me. It really doesn't even matter what my conscience allows. You know, even if my conscience doesn't condemn me. There's coming a final judgment when all of these things will be clear. And so, he's effectively saying, stop judging me on the basis of what is not written. Stop judging me based on your own external biblical standards. And the danger in, in that kind of warning or expectation on, by the part of, on the part of Paul is that the people might think, well, if we should stop judging him, then maybe we don't, maybe we don't have to judge at all. Maybe we can just leave judging to, to God on the final day and we have no responsibility in it. In it. But here in chapter 5, he actually tells them that, that we must judge when it comes to things that are written. Right where the Scriptures are clear, we must judge other believers. And sexual immorality is a clear violation of God's law. And for a church to allow it is a huge problem. They are failing to judge the immoral believer where they must judge. So, it's true. Some areas are left to God and will be left to the final day of judgment, the hidden motives of our hearts and so on. But there are others that are our clear responsibility. And so we must not, chapter 4, go beyond what is written and make up our own kind of standards and judge people on the basis of those. But we also should not go to the other extreme either, which is neglecting to judge at all. You know, living on our life verse of Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. So, well, I can't judge then. Paul's saying No. There is a happy medium. There's something that is expected where there is a proper kind of judging that must go on in the church. Otherwise, the church is left to chaos and ruin, ultimately, destruction. It will be destroyed by sin. Because sin that is left alone in one person will actually spread to more and more people. So, let's take a look at the chapter together. I'll read it beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I... On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater 
or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. God is holy. Jesus is holy. And we are the body of Christ. And so we must be holy. The church and unholiness are incompatible. They do not mix. They don't work together. They cannot coexist long term. The church and unholiness must be separated. The church must separate itself from unholiness. That's the leaven illustration that we're going to look at. So let's look at the problem first in verses 1 and 2. The problem is that the church failed to separate from unholiness. Very simple. Okay? You are to be holy as I am holy, and yet unholiness abounds. It, it, it exists and it continues. He begins with the individual sin, and then he moves to the corporate neglect. So first, the individual sin in verse 1. The nature of the sin is that a man has his father's wife at the end of the verse. So if it, if it were his mother, his biological mother, then the text would probably just say mother. That's what Paul would just say. But because he says his father's wife, it's very likely his stepmother, and Paul is shocked at this. That's why he says, it is actually reported. It's hard for me to believe that this would be reported of a Christian church. And here's why. Look, look at the middle of the verse. It says, such immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. Now, do you say that, is he saying that no Gentile has ever committed this kind of incest where uh, a, a son is is having an immoral relationship with his stepmother. No, I don't think he's saying that. He's saying it's not allowed to exist in there. By law, this kind of activity is disallowed. It's prohibited by the Romans. In fact, that's what, that was the case in the ancient Near East. They found it appalling for a son to have an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And so, as a result, they would banish him from the Roman colony or they would kill him. Now, these are pagans we're talking about who see this type of immorality as disgusting that needs to be removed from their midst. They don't want to have anything to do with this. And this is coming in a time and in a, in a city, Corinth, that by its nature was an immoral city. And Paul's saying, even in your wicked city, this kind of activity doesn't exist. And so he's surprised that it would exist there. We have this flagrant sin by the individual, but there's something worse than this flagrant individual sin. And that is in verse 2. It's the knowing neglect of a congregation who not only allows it to continue, but they boast in it. They boast in it. Verse 2 says, You have become arrogant. You have boasted and you have not mourned. So what should you be doing over the sin? What should they be doing according to verse 2? They should be mourning over it. And at the end of the verse, they should have removed this man long time ago. But instead, they're boasting over this sin. Apparently, the church had justified the sin, thinking that, you know, maybe God's grace covers all of our sins. And so, because it does, we can do whatever we want, we can live however we please. If God's grace abounds in sin, then why not sin all the more? Romans right, chapter 6. Paul says, may it never be. It's the idea of licentiousness. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Now how does Paul know that they're arrogant about it? Apparently, remember, Chloe's household is reporting some of these things to Paul in chapters 1 through 6. She's reporting what's going on in the church. She already reported the divisions. Now we're starting to see the immorality and the lawsuits coming up. So how does he know that they're arrogant, that they're boasting? How might it show themselves itself to Paul? And I think 
the clearest way that their boasting is seen is, first, in their failure to mourn, but then, secondly, they fail to remove the man from membership, right? By now you should have mourned so that the one who had done this deed would have been removed from your midst. Here's the arrogance. The boasting. They don't care about this sin. They don't care about the the effects of this sin. They don't care about what it says to the person, right? When he continues in sin, the church allows it. What might that say to him about his spiritual life? What does that say to the rest of the congregation about whether that sin, whether, whether sin can be allowed? What does it say to the watching world? We'll get into some of those later. There are several things that fascinate me about, Paul's, about how Paul handles this problem. Number one, Paul doesn't address the sinner directly. Isn't that interesting? He has this whole chapter that he takes to lay into whom? The congregation. He doesn't say, you sinner need to stop your immorality. And the second thing that fascinates me is that Paul doesn't address the church leaders directly. These are the types of sins that we might say, well, you know what, we'll let, we'll let the pastor handle that. We'll let the pastor and the deacons handle that. No, we, we don't want to get our hands dirty in this thing. We don't want to have anything to do with this. But no, Paul says, you, church of Corinth, I'm talking to you. Stop sitting on your hands. He's going to say in the very last verse to remove this man. It's your responsibility as a whole to remove this man. Now, obviously, there should be some leadership from the top. Absolutely. But, but Paul wants them to see that this is a corporate responsibility. And in fact, a corporate sin. Corporate sin and neglect and pride. So the problem, the church failed to separate from unholiness. The, the solution is very simply that the church must separate from unholiness. Verses 3 through 13. How is the church described in chapter 3, verse 16? Remember? Look back up to there. Chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple or the dwelling place of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Remember, those yous there are all plural. So do you, not, do, do you all not know that you all are a temple, singular, collective temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all. So God comes to dwell among His people. You are the temple, the dwelling place of God. And so in chapter 5, it should be no surprise to us that God's holiness is incompatible with our tolerance of sin. That we have as a congregation a responsibility to remove sin from our midst. How might that happen? Now, in this case, we know how it happens. We need to remove the man from our midst. We need to remove him, and I'm going to argue, from our membership. But I think there's another way, and that is that we remove sin from ourselves individually, that we conform ourselves to the Word through the power of the Spirit, and we we, uh, promote holiness in that way. We make it uncomfortable for unholiness to thrive in this kind of, of um, terrain in this kind of culture. The church must separate from unholiness. In verses 3 through 8, we see that separation from un- unholiness demands judgment of the sinner. Demands judgment of the sinner. Now, again, we, we don't like to talk in these terms. We have to judge the sinner because we, we keep going back to Matthew chapter 7, which again is a misuse, our culture's misuse of that passage that says, we can't judge at all. That's not what Jesus is saying because he goes on to say it later on in that chapter that you need to judge one another. You need to, you, need to, you know, before you go and, and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the beam out of your own eye. Now, what he's saying there is not to stop judging at all. He's saying stop judging while being self-righteous, while not acknowledging your own huge sin, right? So still... There's a speck in someone else's eye. Go after it. Make sure that beam is out of your eye first. So there is a kind of judging that Jesus expects even in that context where He says don't judge lest you be judged. And so 
because of that, we don't like to think about our responsibility as judging other people. We think of judging as being judgmental, of condescension, looking down on people. Paul's saying, listen, I've already done the judging in my mind. Verses 3 through 5, right? (coughs) He basically says, I've already rendered a verdict. And if I were there in person, then I would remove, I would be in support of you removing this man from your midst. Look at verse 3. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. He's essentially saying, what are you waiting for? Is there anything clearer that you need to see about this man's sin? It's time for him to be removed. So Paul wanted him removed from from their midst. Verse 2, we already saw that. What you should be doing is removing him. Verse 4, I've already judged him. Verse 5, what does this judgment look like? Well, I've decided to deliver him over to Satan, verse 5, which means to remove him from the church. Verse 7, he's going to say, clean out the old leaven, which is talking about this immoral man. Verse 9, don't associate with immoral people. What what does he mean by that? Verse 11, don't associate with anyone who's a so-called brother if he is immoral. Verse 12, judge those inside the church. Let's look at that. Verse 12. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Implied answer, nothing. It's not my job. We'll get to that later. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Implied answer, yes. We do have a responsibility to judge those inside the church. So, verse 13 here is the end of it all. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul's saying it's very clear what needs to happen. I've already made a judgment on my part. Now you need to take some action. And notice the authority that he has in verse 4 to do this. He says in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, on the reputation, by the authority of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the verse, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So he's saying, the Lord stands behind the choice that I'm making and that you ought to make to remove this wicked man. The Lord is on your side in doing it. And so here's the expectation that Paul has for them. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled. So the timing of it is when they come together, this is not some individual going, you know what? Yeah, he is immoral and he needs to be removed. So I'll remove him myself. Paul's saying, no. This is something that happens while you are assembled. And the verdict is, verse 5, that he must be delivered over to Satan. Paul says, I decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does it mean to deliver this immoral man over to Satan? Does it mean that the congregation is somehow going to sell the immoral man's soul to the devil in some way? Does it mean that the church is somehow going to call down curses on the immoral man so that he has a really rough life? No. What do you think it means? To deliver him over to Satan. Any ideas? Okay. So out from the protection of the church into whose realm? Into the realm of Satan. Okay, so ideally, we have a body of baptized believers, baptized Jesus followers, who make up this membership. Okay? And if we remove, by church discipline, a person from our midst, we are removing them from the realm of Jesus, the realm of God. And we're delivering him over to the realm which belongs to Satan. Now, does that square with the rest of Scripture? I mean, think about it this way. Satan has no authority over the local church. Right? What did Jesus say? In, in Matthew's Gospel, He said, The gates of hell... This is Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They can't win. Satan has no authority here in this body. Now, he has all sorts of influence, but he's not our master. 
But you know where he does have authority? He has authority outside of his body. Now, not not in other churches. That's not my point. Okay, outside outside of the church in what we call the world. Right, the realm of Satan. And that's because God has permitted Satan to have authority over the world, the realm outside of the church. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world, small g. And that's why he's called in Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. He has authority to do not whatever he pleases because all of his authority is is permitted by God, but but he does have authority to rule in a way he doesn't have authority in the church. So when we say we want to remove this person and deliver him over to Satan, we're delivering him over to the realm which belongs to Satan. We're delivering him over to the world. Why? Why would we ever want to do that? Why not keep him within the safety of the confines of the church? Notice the purpose at the end of verse 5. So that his spirit, whose spirit is that talking about? Okay, it's the immoral man's spirit. And notice it's a small s, so it's his, his um, immaterial being, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So why would we ever deliver someone over to Satan? It sounds counterintuitive. Let's keep him inside of the church. But here's the problem. Paul's going to show this in verses 6 through 8. He's going to say, if we leave him inside of the church, we give him the wrong impression about his own salvation and we also allow the, the danger of his sin to spread to more and more people. That's what happens when leaven is left alone. So we want to see him, his spirit, saved. Before that, though, it says that he'd be given over to the destruction of his flesh. Now, uh, scholars, um, scholars are split over what this means. Some scholars argue that, and when I talk scholars, I'm talking about biblical scholars, people who are um, the ones I'm reading as believers and they, they disagree over what this means. It could be that we're delivering him over to the destruction of his physical flesh, right? Like Ananias and Sapphira, right? So that he is destroyed. Obviously, that raises some other arguments as to whether Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Or the other example that's used is 1 Corinthians 11, where, you know, if you don't take the Lord's Supper seriously, some of you are sick and some are sleeping, right? Talking about death. Some of you are sick and some of you are dead because you didn't take the Lord's Supper seriously. So, could be talking about we're delivering him over to Satan so that his physical body is destroyed, so that God kind of preserves him from going any farther into the sin and yet saves his soul, right? So that his spirit is saved on the day of Jesus Christ. But other scholars, and I would, I would lean towards the second option, seems to make more sense that the flesh here is referring to the sin nature. That is, that if a person is going to be saved, if they're going to be awakened to what needs to happen in their life, to the reality of sin and the danger of it, then they need, their flesh has to die. Their sin nature has to die. And so in that way, he's handed over to the realm of Satan so that he can realize the weight of his sin before the holy God. And if he is a believer, then he'll realize that I have just been excommunioned from a group of Jesus followers because I was living like an unbeliever and that should be a terrifying thing to any genuine believer, should it not? So in short, Paul's reason for the church to judge the offender in his restoration, uh, the, 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 the purpose to judge the offender, is this man's restoration. We want to see his spirit saved on the day of Jesus. So no matter how harsh it feels to get rid of someone in our midst who is harboring this gross sin, we must do it for the sake of their soul. But we also must do it for the sake 
of our own church, for the holiness of our church. And that's what this next section is about, verses 6 through 8. Hey, that was, that was a preview of what's coming up. Verses 6 through 8, Paul's warning about failing to judge sin. So, if we fail to judge sin, we're, we're doing harm to this man. But if we fail to judge sin, we also allow holiness, unholiness to spread within our own body. So the first problem in ignoring the sin is that it makes him think that he's okay with God when he's actually living opposed to God. And we'll get into that next week when we look at chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, see the kinds of sins that are not uh, indicative or descriptive of believers. So that's the first problem, is that we make him think he's okay with God. The second problem with ignoring the sin of the member is that sin is a lot like leaven. It spreads if it's not removed. So here Paul uses the analogy of bread dough. The church is the dough. The leaven is the gross immorality that is left alone. And we often immediately think leaven and yeast. But but technically, in the ancient Near East, yeast was fairly uncommon. So not everyone had yeast. It was not easy to come by. And so Paul's use of the word leaven was probably referring to a fermented dough. A fermented dough would be mixed with a new lump of dough in order for the whole lump to grow. It reminds me of how friendship bread works. You've done that before? Amish friendship bread? We used to do it when I was a teenager. My mom did. I, I watched. But your friend gives you a bag of starter dough that already has activated growth going on, and you add a few ingredients after a couple of days, wait. Then you draw out some of that mixture and you start your loaf and then you pass on the rest of that, break it up and pass it on to other people. I think that's similar to what's going on here. That the, We have this little section of fermented dough that's already mixed with the new dough and what's going to happen if we don't cut that section off and start with the new lump? It's going to spread. Paul is surprised at their failure here. Notice this question that he asks. Do you not know? Don't you know this? This unrepentant sin will spread and will cause destruction among all of you. And sin is like a rotten apple left in a barrel of apples or like an infection. The rotten apple is not removed. If the infection is not removed, it's not dealt with, what's going to happen? It's going to spread. And so Paul appeals to them on the basis of three realities in verses 7 and 8. Three realities. First, the reality of their corporate holiness. The reality of their corporate holiness. <coughs> Verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. So there's the command. But notice his basis for that. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Notice that he doesn't say, just as you ought to be. Here's what I want you to be. I want you to be unleavened. No, he's saying you are. You are unleavened. You have been set apart by God as holy. So start living like that. Remove this from your midst that doesn't fit with who you are for the reality of their corporate holiness. Secondly, the reality of Christ's past cleansing. The reality of Christ's past cleansing. Do you see that at the end of verse 7? For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let's think about this imagery that Paul is using here of the Passover. What do you know about the first Passover? I'm not talking about when Christ came as a Passover lamb, but what do you know about the first Passover? Okay. Okay. So we have, you have to make sure that you remove all the leaven from your house. What about the death angel? You had to slaughter an animal, put the blood on the doorpost. Anyone who did, what happened? passed over that house. The firstborn did not die in those houses. Okay, so effectively, this is all of Israel. So, 
the interesting thing about Paul bringing up Passover after he's talking about leaven is that's exactly what had to happen before this whole Passover took place, is that they had to remove the leaven from their house. Why did they have to do that? Anyone remember? Okay. Okay. Partly it was a hurry. Any other <coughs> idea with the symbolism of the unleavened bread? What would be found? Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, the show bread was unleavened bread. Um, I think, and I, I I should have just pulled up a text so we could look at it together. But, but I think there there is um, a connection to the holiness, which is many. If you think about many of the Jewish laws that there were, were about holiness. Okay, it wasn't that they made them more spiritual in and of themselves? Like, because I don't eat pork, I'm more spiritual than you. No. Uh, God's just saying, listen, those things are unclean for you. Why? Because you are a holy people set apart for me. So every other house is going to have in it leaven. They're going to have in their house some kind of leaven for their bread. But for you, on this one specific time, I want to make sure that you don't have it. In fact, every other Passover after that, they were supposed to do the same thing. The week of unleavened bread. Remove all the leaven from their house before they celebrate Passover. Why? They need to be reminded partly because they were in a hurry, but also because they are set apart for God. They're going to do it God's way. Now, notice the language here at the end of verse 7. Because I think this is important. Now we come to Christ, our Passover. Right? He fulfills the analogy, the type of the Old Testament Passover by becoming the Passover lamb. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So, when did Christ's Passover take place compared to where we are right now? Past, present, or future? That was an easy one. Okay. When should the cleansing have taken place? When does cleansing, the cleansing of the leaven from within the house take place? Before or after a Passover? Before. So what's Paul saying here? You have been set apart for God. You are unleavened. You already are. The reason I know that is because the Passover lamb has died for you. He's been sacrificed. So here's what doesn't make sense. You still have leaven living among you. You still have leaven in your dough. It doesn't make sense. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. So this cleansing should have already taken place. They have been set apart by God. And their holiness, their set-apartedness was secured in the cross when their lamb was sacrificed. And when they recognize the reality of this past cleansing, then it should motivate their future or ongoing cleansing. That's the third reality. The reality of ongoing cleansing. Look at verse 8. So what does all this mean? We are unleavened and if Christ is our Passover, expects us to be without leaven, then, verse 8, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we need to celebrate the Passover continually with purity. Now, I'm not talking about the holiday. I'm talking about the fact that Christ died for us. We need to celebrate it with purity, not with impurity. So the church failed to separate from unholiness. That was their problem. The solution was they must separate from unholiness. Separation from unholiness demands judgment of the sinner. And then secondly and finally, Separation from unholiness does not mean separation from the world. Here Paul has to clarify what he had told them before. Apparently he had told them before that that they must be separate from immoral people. He had told them, let's look at the text so we can see this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So that was their command, their expectation, their prohibition. We're not going to associate with immoral people. Now, Paul wants to clarify that. Now, 
Let's first just talk about this letter that he was, he's talking about here in verse 9. I wrote you in my letter. Now, it's not this letter because there's nowhere in this letter other than this passage we're looking at where he had told them before that I, I don't associate with immoral people. He hadn't done that. So he's talking about another letter that is unknown, that we don't have, that's not a part of our canon. Okay? So this actually is Second Corinthians, if you remember from our, from our introduction. And then there's a severe letter after this one that's not preserved. It's not a part of the canon. And then there's a fourth Corinthians, which we call Second Corinthians. Okay, so if you got all that straight, you're in good shape. If not, don't worry about it. Anyway, in that letter, that first letter, Paul told them, like he says here in verse nine, don't associate with immoral people. But now he wants to clarify because apparently he was misunderstood, as often can happen, right? That the interpreter misunderstands what is being said. And he says, he clarifies by saying, listen, if I meant don't associate with all immoral people, then where would you have to go? Verse 10. You'd have to go outside this world. Okay? You have to go into space. And hopefully you don't bump into anybody else out, up there. Because this world is full of immoral people. But that's not what I meant. So what did you mean, Paul? Well, verse 11, he clarified what he meant by don't associate with immoral people. <coughs> Would someone read verse 11 for me? Okay, so we need to focus on that second line. Don't associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral. So not just an immoral person, but one who is a so-called brother. So an immoral person who also is a professing believer. That's who we're not supposed to associate with. And he adds to that, not just immoral, but then he adds all these other things, right? Those who are covetous and swindlers and idolaters. Okay, so that's who I had in mind. And then he goes on to say, at the end of the verse, not even to eat with such a one. So here's how serious I think this is that you cut off this relationship with someone who calls himself a brother and is living in immorality or any of these other sins. You need to not associate with them. And here's as far as I would go. Don't even eat with them. Now, that's going to bring up all sorts of challenges in our minds. Well, what happens if I'm married to the person? Or what happens if it's my son? And I think the point is, not that we never have any interaction with them again, but rather that whenever we have any close social interaction with them, we do not condone their sin. We need them to be sure that what they're doing is opposed to the God that they say they follow. So we don't shun them. We remove them from our midst. And we don't associate with them. We don't put them in a position where they think everything's okay. Where they think we think everything's okay. In verses 12 and 13, there's a restatement about our responsibility here to judge. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Again, implied answer, nothing. Why? Who is responsible for judging outsiders? Look at the answer. Where do you find that answer? Verse 13, right? But those who are outside, God judges. So, who are we to judge people outside of our church? The immoral people outside of our church. Who, who are we to do that? We are no one. That's not our gift. That's not our responsibility. God will take care of that. In His time, He will judge those outside the church. But, notice the second part of verse 12. Do you not... Okay, this is... Our, you can already see this. This is like when we are expecting an implied answer of yes. Do you not want to get me a gift for Christmas? Right? I'm expecting a positive answer there. Do you not want to do that? Well, you say, of course I do. We're kind of leading them along. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Implied answer, yes. That's our responsibility. God takes care of those outside 
And here's how I would say it. God judges those inside through us. Not that we are kind of working opposed to God. God, you take care of that out there. We'll take care of this in here. But by, remember, back to verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus. So on the authority of Jesus, we judge those inside the church. Does that make sense? We have that responsibility. Here's the bottom line. The last part of verse, four, verse 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy. Two places really, but the one um, that I think it probably refers to is Deuteronomy 17.7. There... Israel was told to, to let it be known if, if there was an individual in their midst who was engaging in idolatry. And if that person was in their midst, in the people of Israel, in the congregation of Israel, they need to be removed from Israel. Why? Because in the congregation of Israel was where the presence of God resided. If the people were going to enjoy what was best in life, God's presence, and they themselves had to be holy. Which meant not just individually, purification, rituals, internally in the heart, but it meant corporately. Someone's in there involved in idolatry and they're just we just let them go. Don't be surprised when the glory departs. Don't be surprised when the glory cloud is gone and the special measure of God's presence has departed. And so Paul's saying here, this is the same idea here for Israel as it is for the church. Cut off the fermented lump of dough before it spreads. Remove the unrepentant sinner. Excommunion him. We, we don't really like the phrase excommunicate because it has too many Catholic overtones, but that's exactly what we ought to do. Excommunion them. Don't allow them to be a part of the communion, the, Lord, the Lord's Supper. Why? What are we saying when we come together as at the Lord's table? That we all are people who affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we're willing to, to submit our lives to Him as we seek to do by acknowledging our sins and our dependence upon Him. But when we have someone in our midst who's not willing to do that, they may affirm that Jesus is Lord, but they're not living like it, living with unrepentant sin, then we need to remove them. We need to excommunion them. Which is, which is to say, we need to remove them from our congregation. From our, I should say, from our membership. Treat them like an unbeliever, as Paul says in other places. Now, how would we treat an unbeliever? Would we never talk to them? Would we not want them to come to church? No, we, we would love to have. We have, we, we have removed some people from our midst for known sin. And they were unwilling to repent. Do we not want to see them back here underneath the teaching of God's Word? Yes, we do. Okay, so that's not what we're talking is saying we need to get a restraining order on them type thing, right? What we're saying is they cannot be a part of our membership. They cannot have the sense that everything is okay with their lives spiritually because it's not okay. Why must we do this? First, for the sake of the immoral man, right? Verse 5, so that his spirit will be saved. We do it for him. Second, we do it for our church's sake. Why? What happens to leaven is left alone. <coughs> it spreads. So for His sake, for our sake, and for God's sake, right? We represent God, do we not? We represent the holiness of God to a world who can't see God. And what are we saying to the world? When we have a member of our church who's living in known, who's living in vile, unrepentant sin. 
what are we saying about God's holiness? You know what? It really doesn't matter. And, you know, this unbeliever who goes to work with this sinning member of ours says, you know what? He's being immoral. I'm being immoral. He's a member of a church and is okay with God. I must be okay with God. Right? So, so we do damage to the name, the reputation of our Savior, of our God. And we allow... So for the sake of Him, for the sake of us, for the sake of God, we remove this man from our midst. So let me just give you two principles here. Number one, God wants our church to be free from vile sins. God wants us to be free from corruption, from immorality, covetousness, idolatry. God wants us to be holy as a congregation. So what does that look like? It means we have certain boundaries that ought to mark us out as God's people. Now, these are not man-made boundaries. These are boundaries that are set up by God in His Word. So what is it that He expects of each one of us, and are we doing those things? Anyone who crosses those boundaries and is unwilling to repent must be removed from our midst. God wants our church to be free from vile sins, and we could say vile sinners. Unrepented vile sinners. Secondly, God has entrusted our church with the responsibility to remove the sinner from our membership. God has entrusted our church with the responsibility to remove the sinner from our membership. Notice Paul doesn't do it himself. He doesn't say, I'm, I have removed him. He's saying, in my mind I have, but now you have to do it. Paul doesn't tell uh, the man himself, Give, turn in your resignation. Not how you're supposed to live. And he doesn't tell the pastor of the church to handle it on his own. He writes the letter to the church as a whole and he says, you all remove this man from your midst. God has entrusted this responsibility, the guarding of purity to the church. Don't underestimate your responsibility in this. Don't pass this off to the professionals who are paid to handle big problems. We all have a responsibility to guard what has been entrusted to us. Now, removing a member from our midst seems a little harsh. Right? I'm sure you've heard of people, maybe you, you might be thinking this way yourself. I, I just don't like conflict. I, I would just wish we could all get along. I just want to love that person. And in loving, it would not be loving for us to remove him from our midst. And you know, God is love. And Jesus loves me. And love, love, love. And what I'm arguing for is not that we be compassionless in this whole process. That's not what I'm arguing for. But love is not the primary attribute that we need to be concerned about. It would be secondary to the primary one, which is what? Holiness. People who speak about Jesus being only loving and only compassion, compassionate ignore that He is first a holy God. That He is the holy God and that we are His body. And so if He is holy, then we must be holy. We must remove unholiness. And anyone who says that Jesus is all loving, He doesn't care about our sin or He can just kind of look over it, fails to read the book of Revelation when Jesus will come as a judge and a warrior with a sword from His mouth. And He will remove all unholiness. Love, the most loving thing that we can do for that man, for our church and for our God, is to judge that man. To remove him from our midst. So, when there is open, serious, and unrepentant sin, we're not just talking about someone who slipped up like a David. We're talking about someone whose general pattern of life is heading in the wrong direction. The Mississippi River is supposed to be flowing south, and here it flows. It's not that, you know, there's just a little bit of a stretch that kind of flows north. 
No, but the, yeah, there, there's going to be some setbacks spiritually. Like we all have them, right? But the general direction of the Mississippi is that it flows south. But if for some reason we have a river that's flowing north, that's where we say, no. We have to remove you. That is unrepentant sin. We've come to you and approached you on that lovingly. We want to see you turn. We've come with two or three, or, or one or two others. And now we brought it to the church. And you still won't repent. And you have to be removed from our midst for the sake of your soul, so that you will be saved on the day of Jesus, so that our purity would remain intact, and so that the reputation of Christ in this place would not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, we do not take pleasure in the removal of immoral so-called brothers. Lord, it is a grave thing to fall into the hands of an angry God unless that angry God is assuaged by the atonement that comes through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we want to acknowledge and lift up Your holiness. And we want to combine that with the compassion that matches our Savior. So, Lord, we pray that You'd help us in this. And we pray that, that anyone here who is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that, that we as a church would restore them the spirit of gentleness, that we would encourage them day after day as long as it is called today so that that kind of sin would be avoided. Lord, we need your help in this. So give us the strength and the boldness to be able to do this and to see our responsibility in it in Jesus' name. Amen.